Welcome to the podcast with all your mind, hosted by me, Rachel Grimm. We're here to help understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back. This is Rachel and this is With All Your Mind. And this is the last of our what turns out to be three-part little mini-series on written language, alphabets, uh, syllabaries, logosyllabaries, different scripts, and the history of the English alphabet, a little history on the English language. And we're going to wrap it up today with talking about different options. Like if we didn't have the English alphabet, what is the Roman alphabet? What else could we use and what would work and how do things work for other people? And we're going to go back to our four big ideas that we mentioned at the beginning, see what more we know that we didn't know at the beginning and wrap it up. All right. So let's get into it. A little recap. We have talked about the history of the alphabet, how the alphabet itself came out of the ancient Near East, which is the Mesopotamian region. So we call that today the Middle East, the area around Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Egypt. That's the ancient Near East. And sometimes it covers into Iran as well. And Turkey. (laughs) So that's where our alphabet came from. It was a Semitic alphabet. And it was the granddaddy alphabet that the Phoenician alphabet, Hebrew alphabet, and Arabic alphabet all came out of. And every other alphabet in the world gradually, eventually descended from that one alphabet. So the alphabet was a pretty unique invention in the world. Scripts, not as unique an invention. There are many different scripts in the world. But when it comes to alphabets, they all came out of the same alphabet. So that's the history of the alphabet. And then the history of the English language, which you have to treat separately. So we have Anglo-Saxon. We have an Anglo-Saxon language. And that is the Angles were one of the tribes in the British Isles. And the Saxons were one of the Germanic tribes that came and conquered the British Isles. And this was in the 500s AD. English is a combination of Germanic tribes and English or sorry, British tribes, Old English and Germanic and Norse are all are kind of like granddaddy languages. We are in the Indo-European language family, which also includes Romance languages, which are direct descendants of Latin, such as Spanish, Portuguese, French, and Italian. Okay, so Indo-European and then Germanic and Romance are different families within the Indo-European language family. So we are more related to German than to Latin or Greek, as far as English kind of genealogy of the language goes. The way our language looks is affected not only by our alphabet, by what we try to cram into our alphabet, because the English alphabet was not created for English. We adopted it and then adapted it, but not very well, (laughs) like a lot of alphabets and languages. And then we were also affected by a heavy French influence 
that a big chunk of it happened because of the Norman invasion of Great Britain in 1066 AD. A lot of French influence came in at that time, and a lot of French influence stayed. And, you know, England and France are very close to each other, have a very long history together. They're always trying to conquer each other. Lots and lots of influence back and forth both ways there. And then we also adopted a lot of vocabulary from other languages. English is a very eclectic language. It has a lot of different vocabulary from a lot of different sources. We have words from African languages, Japanese, Hindi, Arabic, Aztec, a lot of words from Spanish that you probably barely consider imports anymore because we use them so regularly, like tortilla. Does anybody think of that as a a Spanish word anymore? I think of it as just a word, right? We know exactly what it means. It doesn't feel very foreign, but it's not an English word. It's a Spanish word. So there's a lot of things like that in English. Even the word prairie, as in the Midwestern prairie, that is not an English word. That's a French word. So we're going to talk a little bit more about alphabets and mostly talking about different alphabets in the world and how they were formed and who uses them and why. Uh, A lot of that is political. Just to talk about if we didn't use the English alphabet, the Roman alphabet that was adapted to the English language, if we didn't use that, what are our other options? What other scripts are out there? There's a ton. And there's different kind of family groups for different scripts. For instance, we talked a little bit about what are the ancient scripts of the world. And we mentioned Chinese, Egyptian hieroglyphics. We mentioned the ancient alphabet in the Middle East, Mayan glyphs. And the one that I did not mention that is also an ancient script is Sanskrit. So a lot of the languages of the world today now use a descendant of one of those scripts. So we already talked about what descendants from the Semitic alphabet, Arabic, Hebrew, and then Phoenician turned into Greek, turned into Latin, and the Roman alphabet is used by most of Europe, but is also used all throughout the world uh, because Spanish uses it. It's used all through South and Central America and North America. Australia speaks English, so they use it. Vietnamese, even though it's an Asian language, uses a Roman alphabet, and they just added in lots of diacritic marks. A lot of Southern Asian languages use a descendant from Sanskrit, such as the Thai and, I do believe, the Bangladeshi scripts are descendant from Sanskrit, and a lot of the Indian languages, the script is a descendant from Sanskrit. Then Chinese, we know that Chinese influenced a lot. Koreans and Japanese both used Chinese characters until they developed their own scripts. And that was a controversial move on their part. And we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later. So let's talk about the alphabets. The Cyrillic alphabet. If you've heard about the Cyrillic alphabet, you've probably always connected it with Russia or Russian. And that's a good start, but it's not where it stops. The alphabet was created by a guy, and he was later turned into a saint. He was sainted, and his name was Cyril, Saint Cyril. And he was nominated by the Pope of his time to be a missionary to Russia. 
But he knew that he would not be an effective missionary if he was not able to bring the Bible to the Rus, that's ancestors of the Russians. He knew that he wouldn't be able to bring, um, he wouldn't be able to be an effective missionary to the Rus unless he brought the Bible to them in their own language. So he told the Pope, look, I am not going unless you let me translate the Bible into their language. And the Pope finally conceded and say, okay, go ahead. So St. Cyril traveled to what is now the Ukraine, and he translated the Bible into the Slavic language, and he created an alphabet for them. He adapted it from the Greek alphabet. And so today, the Cyrillic alphabet is used by most of what is the former USSR, the former Soviet republics. Some of them have started using their own script or a different script again, such as the Ukrainians, and we talked about that in the last podcast. But this alphabet, the Cyrillic alphabet, was created in 900 AD. So just like every other alphabet, it represents vowels and consonants and was adapted straight from the Greek alphabet, so it looks more like Greek than anything else. It's written left to right, just like English, and has capitals and lowercase, just like English. Not all alphabets have that, but Cyrillic does. Okay, so that's the short story, (laughs) the very short history of the Cyrillic alphabet. Next up, we have the Hebrew alphabet, and I'm just going to give you some facts. This is not the whole history of Hebrew, but the Hebrew alphabet is used for Hebrew, Yiddish, and a few other Jewish languages. We know it's at least 3,000 years old. We don't know how much longer, and it has mostly consonants but there are a few consonants that are also used as vowels. If you know anything about Hebrew, you know what it looks like. There's a lot of dots and little kind of punctuation marks, but they're below or in the letters. Those are extra marks to show vowels, but they're not always used. For foreign language publications, like if it's a a language textbook or if it's for a newspaper or something, they often use those markings. But in normal writing, if you just go to Israel and look around, there's not a whole lot of those markings. They're extra for people that need it, (laughs) basically. So Hebrew is a Semitic alphabet, so one of the oldest in the world, and it's written right to left. It does not have lower and uppercase, but some of the letters, just a handful of the letters, I think about three or four, have a different form when they're at the end of a word. So they just look slightly different. Greek does the same thing and Arabic does the same thing. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So it's just slightly shorter than the English. Now for the Arabic alphabet, if you've ever looked at it, it's very flowy, very curved. Hebrew is a little more angular. Arabic is more flowy, but they're both from the Semitic language family. And it's similar to Hebrew in structure in that it's right to left, doesn't have vowels, doesn't have upper and lower case, but it's a bit more complicated than Hebrew because the forms of each letter matter whether it's at the beginning, middle, or end of a word. In each place, it can look slightly different, right? (laughs) That's unfortunate. (laughs) I'm not a fan of that about Arabic. It has 18 letters, so that's even shorter than the Hebrew alphabet, 18 letters, but it has 28 phonemes or sounds. 
So like English, it has sounds that it tries to jam into its shorter alphabet. Those are just a handful of the alphabets that we have in the world. Now I'm going to talk about some other systems that we have, such as the Japanese syllabary. So I mentioned before that Japanese has three different scripts. They have the Chinese characters, that's called kanji, and then they have two other uh, syllabary scripts, katakana and hiragana. Hiragana is my favorite. It's because it's the only one I ever learned. And it has 48 characters and each one stands for a syllable. Japanese also use Chinese characters, which stands for whole ideas or words. And interestingly, you would, you would wonder, okay, so if they have three different scripts and each script can do the whole job, they don't really need each different script. Why bother? Why bother with three different scripts? And it's a good question because it makes it pretty complicated. And one of the reasons why they do the three different scripts is that each script has its own strength. Kanji gives you quick ideas. You can just look at a character and know a whole idea just in that one character. Hiragana can very easily give you grammatical information. And katakana can very easily spell out foreign words. And so they each one has a strength and they don't want to get rid of the strengths. They don't want to water down their language, which you can't blame them for. So sometimes when something is complicated, it's not just complicated because it's complicated. There's strengths in there that are worth holding on to. Chinese has, like you know, it's a logosyllabary, which means it has characters. And one character represents one whole idea or word, uh, a house symbol for a house. It gets complicated, though, because when it's a, maybe what you call a, a category word, such as book, it will have one character. But then when it's something within the category, such as magazine or page, it's going to have that character plus another character in the same space. So the size of a character is always the same. We're going to blow it up just so that we can imagine it. Say a character is one inch by one inch, and then we're going to do the tree character. Okay, so a tree character looks kind of like a tree, so it's a pretty easy one. You look at the tree character, and it's one inch by one inch, and it's like tree. Okay, got it, tree. Now, if you're trying to write the character for maple tree, that one character is still going to be one inch by one inch, but now it's going to have the tree character in it, plus another character to show that we're not just talking about tree, we're going to talk about maple tree. So the characters kind of build off of each other, but they don't get bigger. They stay the same size, which means they get complicated in a small space. That makes it look complicated to our untrained eyes that don't know Chinese. All right, so how many characters do you need to know? Well, there's an official list that the Chinese government has that's kind of like their literacy list. You need to know these many characters just to stay afloat. That list contains, and I forget the exact number, but it's somewhere in the 1800 and something like 46 characters range. It's a lot. You have to learn 1,800 characters just to be able to write a high school paper. (laughs) 
Then there's um, very strange looking scripts that are not really related to any other script that we know of. They look different, they act different, such as the Georgian script. If you're bored and you want something to do, look up the Georgian script from the country of Georgia in the Caucasus Mountains. This is one of Ryan's favorite scripts because it looks so different and weird. Next up, we have the Indian scripts. So listen to some of these names. Hindi, Tamil, Bengali, Punjabi, Kashmiri. There's a lot of languages in India. Hundreds, in fact. So here are some fun facts about Indian languages. There are basically 24 official languages in India. Though Hindi and English are the national languages, there are regional languages for the different states. There are hundreds more, but they are not officially considered languages. They're considered dialects, largely because they don't have a written form. That means that there are hundreds of languages in India alone that don't have a written language. So some of you might be interested in how Bible translation plays into all this. And that is a whole can of worms because in order to translate the Bible into a language of a people, you need to have somebody literate in that language to read it. So India has tons of languages where it would be pointless to translate a written Bible because nobody would read it because there isn't a written language for that language. And so there's nobody to read it. Right? So there's a lot of building blocks that come into play before you even do a Bible translation for a language. So the official languages of India, there's 24. That's how many languages of India have a written form. They're considered an official language when they have a written form. So there was one language that formed its own written language, their own alphabet, and their own style. They created it just to become an officially recognized language. So that goes to show how much um, legitimizing power written language has. Things become official and kind of taken more seriously when it's written down. One more fun fact about Indian languages. Hindi is the national language along with English. So many of us think that Hindi must be spoken by the vast majority of Indians, and many do, but there's a lot of other languages. But Hindi is written with what is called the Devangari script. I think I'm getting that name right. Devangari. Pakistan, which is the neighboring country, speaks Urdu. And if you remember your history, Pakistan used to be a part of India until it split off to become its own Muslim nation because the Muslims wanted freedom of religion. So India is Hindu largely, and the Muslims, many of them anyway, moved to the region that is now Pakistan and formed their own nation. Now the language of Pakistan is Urdu. Guess what the difference is between Hindi and Urdu? Hindi uses the Devangari script. Urdu uses a Persian script. Other than that, they're virtually the same language, but they're considered completely different languages simply because of their written script. So like I said, the written form of a language has a huge impact on tons of stuff. (laughs) All of this is interesting when you put it together 
to realize that written language is an invention applied to spoken language. It's not necessary to language, nor does it exist for all languages like India clearly shows us. Written language makes commerce and organization much easier or just possible on a larger scale. Language also has a legitimizing effect in that people take written language more seriously than spoken language. They either fear it or believe it more or something along those lines. This isn't so true in the internet age since we know not to believe everything we read on the internet or you should. Written language is an invention, which also means that it's not perfect and never has been. So when you think about written language and get upset about spelling or something, just remember that it's an invention, just like every other invention, like the car, you know, and you remember, you know, old black and white movies where they have to crank the car, they have to get out and have somebody else. So you had to have at least two people to start this car because you have to crank it in the front and then have somebody starting it in the car. We progressed on to other forms of the car and the car that we have today is, is pretty good, right? So you think about any invention and how horribly it started or how inconveniently it started. Some written languages around the world are super inconvenient. They just are not great for efficiency or ease of learning or blah, blah, blah. Pick a reason that you find them not so great. So English is no exception. We had advantages and disadvantages. Practically every invention has a history of horrible ideas. And some written languages have had horrible beginnings. Like the Japanese used to only use Chinese characters. And then they would read them back in Japanese. Very, very clunky. Then they invented their own script, but that took hundreds of years. And it was out of different groups of people working on it that they end up up with two different syllabaries. Then there's the story of the Korean alphabet. The Korean alphabet is pretty unique, and I'm not going to get into it because I could probably talk for 10 minutes just about Korean, but it has a really interesting alphabet, and it's the only alphabet of the world that was created with linguistic features and linguistic principles in mind. And it's actually been proposed to be used as an international alphabet. It was invented in 1444, so that's 700 years ago. It's perfectly suited to Korean because it has the same number of symbols as it does phonemes. So it's a one-to-one ratio. One character matches one phoneme and they take care of them all and they don't have any extras. So it's easy to learn because it also has some features in it that make it easy to learn and people like it. Yet, because it's hard to change how people use written language, it didn't become nationally and permanently used until the 1940s. 1940s. That means it wasn't used regularly for 500 years, even though it was a great invention and works well. And that was for a couple of different reasons. Number one, Chinese was seen as more refined. So if you're a refined writer, you use Chinese characters. You don't use that, ugh, new invention. Number two, sometimes easy isn't seen as a good thing. It can be looked down on because it's like, oh, that's too simple. That's for people that don't have a good education. Number three, scientifically or pragmatically useful things 
aren't always popular things. I, th- I was trying to think of an analogy for how to, how to show this, and all I had to think back to was my high school backpack. Backpacks are made with two shoulder straps. How many of us in high school used one <laughs> of those backpack straps? I almost always used one strap of my backpack because it was cooler to wear your backpack with only one strap. It's much better on your back. It's much easier to carry. You don't strain your shoulders or your neck by leaning to one side. So the invention of the backpack is pretty darn good. But if it's not used appropriately, then it doesn't matter. All right, so we're going to review our four big ideas that we talked about at the beginning of the first episode. And now you can look back and see how much more you know about each of these ideas. All right, so number one, the English alphabet was not made for English. Right? Now you know the whole history behind that. So with that, it's going to be imperfect no matter what, unless we make a totally new alphabet or completely overhaul the old one. Number two, written language is often not at all innovative. It's usually very traditional and very hard to change. Written language is not at all innovative. Right? So once we start getting into a tradition of how we write, people like to stick with what they know. Plus, it makes it so that we can read the old stuff just as well. So written language changes much more slowly than spoken language. Number three, writing and written language is not language itself, but an invention that is applied to language. With that, we need to not demand more of written language than it can give us. Written language is one representation of spoken language but it doesn't have a lot of the features of spoken language and it tries to make up for it, but it often can't. You know this whenever you've read a text and you've wondered if that was sarcastic or sincere, right? Is somebody mad at me (laughs) or are they making a joke? And it's hard to tell. That's because written language lacks a lot of the features of spoken language. It has zero body language, which accounts for a lot. It has zero tone or accent or emphasis. Like if I say one sentence one way and, you know, I like apples. I like apples. I like apples. You know, we have three different meanings in there, but if you have written language, it doesn't convey any of that. So spoken language and written language are two different things. And written language only represents one aspect of spoken language, and it tries to make up for it, but it often can't. That's normal and should be expected. Last one, number four. Politics, political lines, political correctness, and cultural standards have all played into language an incredible amount. Governments and allegiances to colonial or regional powers have often had an effect on what language or written language a country uses, such as Chinese with all of the countries around it. It took a very long time for Japanese and Korean to come up with their own scripts because they were tied to the Chinese script and everybody saw that as the the refined, the cultural written language. And they didn't want to change that because they also didn't want to offend the Chinese government and Chinese leaders and rulers. It's no accident that Americans reject French vocabulary and see it as snotty. It's a result of various incidents that caused bad blood between the French and the Americans. Does anybody remember freedom fries? (laughs) 
Freedom fries. We tend to do this every once in a while. We reject the language or cultural similarities of peoples that we have had problems with. So you can see that language is, ah, it's got so much baggage on it that there's never a thing where it's going to be like it can be divorced from culture or from politics or from the changes that come about just as a regular development. They're all part of it. And there's also the, there's the constant tug of war that happens with a language wanting to develop with changes in a culture and tradition that holds it back. So there's just a ton of stuff that's happening in language, both written and spoken. So in the fall, I'm going to connect this with the Bible and the history of the written Bible and how that affects what we read and how we read it. In the meantime, try and pay attention to how you respect or don't respect language or different kinds of language and what the difference would be if it were written down. And pay attention to alphabets and the written symbols we use to express ourselves. Here's a really interesting one. My mom just mentioned to me this morning that a Bible study that she was attending had started bringing numerology into it. Numerology is when people talk about how the Hebrew alphabet can also be numbers and that different words spell out different things and therefore have different uh, importances or kind of secret meanings and things like that. And I explained to her that Hebrew letters are their numbers. So I mentioned before their alphabet starts with Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit. Those are the first five letters. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit. Hey, <laughs> sorry, there's the fifth one. Those are the first five letters, and they also double as numbers. So Aleph is one, Beit is two, Gimel is three, Dalit is four, and He is five. So when you talk about numerology, and how different letters will represent different numbers, and so words will spell something out. It's not how, you have to think how a Hebrew was looking at it, not how you're looking at it. Keep their brain in mind. When they were looking at a word, they were looking at possibly a number or possibly a word. Context would tell them if it was a letter or a number. And it's the same way when you text and you write later, you can write L-A-T-E-R for later, or you can write L, the number 8, and R. If you look at that word later, spelled L-8-R, you can look at that 8 as part of a word, or you can use it as a number. Your brain can flip back and forth and see it two different ways. Hebrews that were reading Hebrew could do it the same way. It was no secret. It wasn't something mystical to them. It was right on the surface. It seems mystical to us, mostly because of people portraying it as super mystical. But don't worry, numerology just means, hey, did you know that there was this other system going on and you don't pay attention to it because you don't know it? That's all that is, okay? So don't get weirded out by numerology. So, <laughs> Pay attention to the alphabets and the written symbols we use to express ourselves. We use a variety of means to do it, and we use a lot. So maybe also try to separate out how you personally interpret written language versus how it's intended to be interpreted, and see why do you interpret differently 
than how it's intended? Or do you? Do you usually just take people's intention in their speech or in their written language and not worry about the rest? I know I don't do that. So have fun with it. Kind of analyze language and see what happens. I'm sorry if that makes your life complicated for a while. That's my world, so welcome to the chaos. All right, so we're going to do one more episode after this one that's going to be my little book review, just telling you about books that I've read in the past year and ones that I particularly saw as really worthwhile or really interesting. But then we'll be done, and then we'll have more in the fall. All right, I hope you have a great summer, and I'll talk to you guys later. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.